Last week, Gordon McCracken abbreviated the reading of Psalm 31 as it was the longest of the Psalms in our focus series. Today's Psalm, Psalm 51, as it says at the start of the Psalm, is clearly stated to be from when the prophet Nathan confronted David after his adultery with Bathsheba. It resonates with some of the recent media about the royal family, but David got in first. Now, many of you will know this story, but some may not or have forgotten the details, so we should really start by reading the whole of the story from 2 Samuel verses, uh, chapters 11 and 12. It should only take about 20 minutes. <laughs> oh, some of you want home for lunch. Oh, well, M maybe I'll just summarize it for you then, just in case you don't know the story. It starts brilliantly, like all good stories, even if it was factual. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, great setting, spring when it was drier, and the armies could move about without getting bogged down in the mud. Kings were expected to go out to war at the head of their armies, and their men followed them. But David, this time, didn't. We're not told why. Maybe he needed a rest to recharge his batteries. Maybe he just wanted to take it easy. Anyway, he sent his army off under their commander, Joab. And while he's up on the roof of his palace one evening, he spots a woman bathing. They didn't have baths in those days, so presumably she was standing naked on the roof, getting water poured over her like a shower. In modern languages, he, he fancies her and sends a servant to find out who she is. Then he sends for her and they have sex. But there were no contraceptives in those days. She becomes pregnant. So David starts scheming. He sends to the army for her husband, Uriah the Hittite, presumably someone who'd adopted the Israelite faith, as his main name means, the Lord is my light. Uriah was one of the royal guard who was with the army. And David tries to entice him to go home and to take it easy and to go to his wife. But Uriah is a man of principle. He can't take it easy while his fellow soldiers are out in the field. So he sleeps outside with his servants. The next night, since his first plan hadn't worked, David gets him drunk, hoping that will do the trick. But Uriah resists temptation again. So David moves to his next ploy. He sends Uriah back to the army with a note for Joab telling him to put Uriah where the fighting is fiercest, then pull the other soldiers back, leaving him exposed. And the enemy kill him, as David had intended. Bathsheba heard that Uriah was dead, and she mourned for him, presumably a time of mourning as prescribed in the law. Then David had her brought to him, and she became his wife, and they had a son, but the thing David had done displeased the law. In those days, the Israelite law was the Ten Commandments, backed up by various other rules and regulations in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. So how many of the Ten Commandments do you reckon that David broke? Gordon did say something about this last week. How many did he break? Any offers? All ten, that's pushing it a bit, I think. 
Bill. I'm hearing three from this side. Any advance on three? Four. We're up to four. Any more than four? I think you can just about squeeze five, but maybe not. Well, certainly, he committed adultery. And although he didn't actually kill Uriah himself, he made sure he was killed. So I think you shall not murder comes into it. And before he had adultery with Bathsheba, presumably he coveted her. And he got rid of Uriah so he could steal her. And finally, I have doubts about how much he honored his father and mother in doing all this. But then Jesse, his father, was old and was probably dead by this time. Now, I don't know how well known David's actions were in Jerusalem. They had no social media, TV, newspapers, or even books revealing the inner story of the royal family. But I imagine it might have been the Israelite equivalent of the talk of the steamy, or at least the guardroom. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, Nathan the prophet is sent to David by God, and he tells him a story. I think you could call it a parable about a rich man with vast flocks and a poor man with one little ewe lamb that he loved. And when a traveller visits the rich man, he didn't take one of his own animals as a meal for the traveller, but the poor man's lamb. David was angry against the man and pronounced sentence, which in part influenced what happened to him. And Nathan said, you are the man. God spared David's life, but he suffered in many other ways. So we come to Psalm 51. Remember that David hadn't come to the Lord to confess his sin of his own account, but only after Nathan and the Lord confronted him. David is a bit of an enigma, changeable like us all. He starts by pleading for God's mercy, verses 1 and 2. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Note the variety of the words he uses for his sin. Transgression, sin, evil, iniquity. Verse 3, I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. And then he says something which seems a bit odd. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You only? God only? What about Uriah? Ah well, the enemy kills him. What about all those who suffered as a result of David's actions? Well, that hadn't happened yet. He accepts God's judgment. Verse 4, you're right in your verdict and justified when you judge. And then he comes up with one of the clearest statements about original sin in the Bible, verses 5 and 6. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. If verses 3 to 6 are David's confession of sin, then verses 7 to 12 is a plea for forgiveness and a wish to be in a renewed relationship with God. He wants cleansing, made whiter than snow. I thought it would be very apt for today, but the weather's more changeable than David was. 
He wants joy, gladness, rejoicing. He wants God to ignore his sins and forget what he's done. He wants God to give him a new heart and spirit. Note he says, create a new heart. Don't adapt what's already there. Make a new one, God the creator. Don't throw me out of your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Give me joy and a willing spirit. And the third section recounts what David will do in repentance. He'll teach transgressors your ways, sing of his righteousness, praise God. Strangely, it's at this point in the psalm that he requests deliverance from the guilt of bloodshed, either from the many he's killed in battle or acknowledging his part in Uriah's death. So he comes on to sacrifices and burnt offerings, acknowledging that God's not interested in these. What God wants is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. But the psalm finishes with a slightly odd note, harking back to what Gordon said last week. Verse 18 and 19. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. At first glance, this could be a statement that the fortunes of the nation were bound up with the fortunes of the king and that his confession and contrition would make it right for the nation as well. But there was nothing wrong with the walls of Jerusalem. The Psalms were written many years before being collected together and more than one collection from various times exists. In the Psalms, we sometimes see what could have been later additions to the text, as Gordon alluded to last week. The walls of Jerusalem were demolished by the Babylonians in Jeremiah's day and rebuilt with the help of the Persians in Nehemiah's day. So some have seen Psalm 51 as in part a confession of the sin of Judah because of turning away from God, taking wives from other people, rather than just that of David. My wife and I quite like Elton John. We like going to his concerts. It's a great time. It's a pity he's giving up. <clears throat> he's a great musician, a great songwriter, a good singer. And he has something to say about a similar situation to David's relationship in one of his songs, with which we can draw some compar comparisons. Even although it's written as a love song, much is applicable to David's situation.
this is more than just sorry at his situation. David is truly sorry, but he repents. Repentance is more than saying sorry. It implies a complete change of heart, a change of direction, a recognition that saying sorry isn't enough, that we need to make a real effort to change our ways completely. It's a message that John the Baptist came to bring to Judah in Matthew 3 verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Or in Luke 3, verse 3, John came preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. When Jesus started his ministry, he used the same words as John. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Matthew 4, 17. And at Pentecost, Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Acts 2.38 David does more than say sorry, for he pledges to teach others the errors of their ways, and he clearly repents. He wants to change himself and his kingdom. And so he hopes to restore his special relationship with God and be forgiven. You might well say, but hadn't he done wicked deeds? How could God forgive him? Remember, this was before Jesus' day. I think the answer lies in his existing relationship with God. After all, he was the one chosen by God, anointed by his prophet, and credited with following God's ways and his path up to now. But while God forgave David and spared his life, it came at a cost. His son died. His wives were taken by one of his own family in adultery in broad daylight for everyone to see. His household was plagued by the sword. Three of his sons died violently. Nevertheless, God spared him, and he at Bathsheba had another son, Solomon, whom the Lord also loved. So does this psalm have anything to say to us here in Claremont? Clement is also often said to be a very welcoming congregation, a loving fellowship, where we welcome Peter, where we welcome people, no matter their background or past. We have had murderers preach here, embezzlers, no doubt some others who would prefer their past or present remain dormant. Tam Stevenson, whose funeral was on Thursday last, was one to say that he felt more welcome at Clement than anywhere else he had been, a sentiment echoed by others. A forgiving congregation, a loving congregation, an accepting congregation. But it's not worth noting that Nathan didn't repent, sorry, that David didn't repent until Nathan challenged him, telling him his power, telling the parable so that he wasn't expecting the rebuke that came next. None of us are perfect, but as a loving congregation, does that mean we are not prepared to point out faults or sins to those within the congregation when we see them acting or saying one thing in church and something rather different outside, at work, in the shops, wherever? 
Can we challenge someone in this situation graciously, lovingly, without causing offence? Are we up to the task? Could we be Nathans? And when we confess our sins before our loving God, do we really repent and vow to change our ways? Can we acknowledge where we have failed God? The whole mission planning exercise is happening because the Church of Scotland has failed God up to now. And are we ready to do our part to help a complete change of direction to put the mission of the Church of the Gospel at the heart of our whole purpose and being for God's kingdom? One thing at least we know is that we stand on even more solid ground with God than even David did. As he said, you do not delight in sacrifice or take pleasure in burnt offerings. But God provided the sacrifice for our sins in sending his son Jesus to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. If we confess our sins and repent, we know that we will be forgiven. The price has already been paid. We are all part of the family of God. And if we confess our sins and vow to repent, can we accept the forgiveness of God in our lives, let go of the guilt, the shame, the remorse, and be whole again? Can we leave it behind us and pursue a more fruitful life? One of the crucial things about forgiving someone is that it's not just for the benefit of the person being forgiven, it's also for the benefit of the person doing the forgiving. If we forgive someone for some wrong they have done us, we give up the weight of carrying around that annoyance, that anguish, that barrier to a healthy relationship with them. Over the years I've learned that at times and have also seen the harm that not forgiving someone can do. Compare the attitude of the two people in Northern Ireland who lost relatives in two separate bombing incidents some years ago in Inniskillen and Omar to some recent TV interviews with people who say that they could never forgive people who killed one of their family. They'll be going to their graves still bitter and resentful. And what effect will that have on their relationship with others? Paul writes in Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. So can we forgive, especially if it's something in our family, in our church family? Psalm 51 teaches us to confess our sins, to truly repent and change our ways, and be forgiven, in turn, forgiving others. A real challenge. So are you up for it? In Jesus' name, amen. At this point in our service, we have a prayer of response. And I thought today we would do just exactly that, have a responsive prayer. So I'll say the words in italics, and all of us can join together in saying the words in bold. So you need to keep your eyes open for this prayer. We are here, O oh God, because we need you. We need your strength. We need your love. We need your forgiveness. Help us to surrender ourselves to you 
so completely that our hearts can understand what you want to tell us. Speak to us about the things we need to do for you and for your kingdom. Let the power of your presence cleanse us and then use us. Make us real disciples of Jesus. We ask this in his name and for his sake. Amen.